Remember that you can support the podcast via Patreon. The link is below. Otherwise, stay tuned for the podcast starting now. So on the podcast today, I'm joined by Dan Norcross, who's probably known for his speaking and writing, but probably best known for his voice on BBC's Test Mass special. Um, so welcome. Thank you for making some time for me today. Darren, it's a pleasure. Let's face it, we've all got quite a lot of time on our hands at the minute. <laughs> yes, well, let's jump straight into that then. Um, obviously, with the coronavirus uh, bringing all sport around the globe to a bit of a standstill uh, now uh, and being advised to self-isolate uh, where one can, um, what kind of effect do you think this is going to have now on yeah, cricket in the UK, especially the, the English county season is meant to be starting kicking off, uh, when is it, uh, next month? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny one we find ourselves in. It really is. And we're in uncharted territory. I say uncharted territory. I mean, these things have happened twice before, I guess you'd say, 1915, end of 1914, 15, and, and then again, you know, end of 39 and 1940. So, uh, English cricket has had those disruptions before, but I don't think when it's ever been quite so fragile, certainly in the domestic game. And there will be enormous concerns among um, both I mean, supporters, obviously administrators, but players. I mean, let's not forget for the players, uh, this is a really unsettling time. British, or I should say English domestic cricket supports 18 first-class counties, there's an awful lot of people whose jobs are reliant on those organisations still existing, uh, coaches, the guys who run the clubs, all the people who make those clubs work. Uh, and it's going to be a real challenge, firstly, I, I guess, for cricket, but, but it's going to be a huge challenge for the country and for the government. We've got a government at the moment that wasn't perhaps the one that you would want to have had in power at a time when a lot of people are going to be looking for handouts. Uh, that's not their sort of natural modus operandi. And I can't see how um, certain clubs, the likes of Leicestershire, Derbyshire, North Hants, for example, are going to survive unless they're given help and support by the government, which I, I'm sort of confidently expecting they will, actually. My initial anxiety over the situation has slightly dissipated as I realised that well, as I realise, and as also the government realises, the severity of the situation. So I'm getting a little bit of comfort about some of the support that's going to be offered to small and medium-sized businesses. And a lot of these counties would fall into that kind of general area. Uh, but I guess also I think once the fallout of this really becomes apparent, uh, which will probably be in the next two or three months, then I think we'll start to see the government really having to pile in with help for all sorts of different sectors. And hopefully cricket will get that help. It's a very unsettling and precarious time. It couldn't have happened at a worse time, of course, from an English cricket perspective. I know football fans are up in arms because their season's you know, nearly over and they're wondering when it'll end. Well, uh, they need to spare a thought for cricket that gets five months of a season, has waited seven months to get one, and then it's going to be wiped out, I think. I wouldn't be at all surprised if um, we see next to no cricket this summer. So uh, broadcasters aren't going to get the games that they've paid for. Uh, players are not going to be able to play. I mean, we've seen lots of stuff today on Twitter. Um, 
isolating cricketers playing backyard cricket. It's it's produced a, a boon in cricket funnies, and it sort of made the game funny again, I guess. But uh, it's so early in the process, Darren, to be able to be sure how bad this will be for cricket. But it's certainly ringing alarm bells, and I'm sure administrators are on that, supporters are on that, and eventually the government will be. It's not going to be their first priority. We're, we're talking about um, the NHS here, aren't we, at the moment, and food shortages and people self-isolating and self-employed people getting no money and people defaulting on rents and mortgages. So at the moment, it would be a little bit unseemly, I think, for cricket to be... Um, charging around keening and wailing and giving udulations as if, you know, the nearest and dearest had just died. But it, it is going to be an issue and it will have to be dealt with at some point. Yeah, I saw an article saying that, um, well, there's, there will be like a hundred million pound black hole to, to fill kind of thing um, if, if the season doesn't go ahead, um, which is yeah quite a, a big number. Uh, and also, you, like you say, you've got to, I think as well, you've got to, you've, yourselves uh you, the freelance kind of journalists uh and your commentators and, and that that rely on uh, the cricket season uh, to make a living um so I'm, I'm sure that also impacts your life um, hugely i mean ab- absolutely hugely but again i mean because we're so early in the crisis um i i don't think it's right too much for people who, who live a thoroughly charmed existence like cricket commentators to be sort of saying oh look at me I've, I've got no money I mean that that the fact of the matter is that there will be a lot of commentators out there that people take for granted and they don't really understand how the finances of broadcasting work you know most of my colleagues are freelancers and we rely on uh, the income we get from a, a an average season as well as the stuff we do in the winter now, I mean, just to give you an example, my last bit of paid work before the season was going to be the uh, Australia-New Zealand One Day International for BT. And then that got cancelled and they don't pay you for, for that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, in, in all honesty, I've got zero income coming in for the foreseeable future and I have a mortgage and bills to pay. So I, I'm fully expecting to be bankrupted by it but by the same token i'm also kind of sanguine because i know that the country's in this boat you know uh by the country i mean you know we have moved steadily in the last few years last 10 years i guess to a gig economy and to freelancers so (coughs) excuse me (coughs) the country can't afford to have millions of people go bankrupt and default on payments for stuff. So it's it's a bigger issue than just cricket. There's loads of self-employed people out there in all sorts of sectors. And I'm sure I have, I mean, I have faith that they will get support. And I know it's a very anxious time for a lot of them. I've spoken to a lot of colleagues, not just the broadcasters, you know, a lot of writers, a lot of journalists are freelancers and um, all of their bookings will just have dried up. So, yeah, I mean, you 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 can worry about these things, or I take that maybe it's a glib view, but I'm kind of thinking, look, we're all self isolating. The bailiffs, there'll be no bailiffs to come round and repossess my belongings in my house. So, you know, <laughs> we'll just have to ride it out. 
that that's that's the probably the the best positive attitude you can probably have at this time just keep keep going with that um and you know like you said there's obviously some players uh, alex hales and that uh was obviously seems that he could be one of the players that, that might might have it uh, i don't know if that's been confirmed yet um but also saw an article with um gareth batty saying that obviously if the season is cancelled kind of thing that this he, he may never play again uh, which would be quite sad uh, because he has been f- around for quite a long time because uh, I remember him uh, when I was still in junior school, uh, him playing for England and that, and that was a, a good uh, probably 13, 14 years ago. Um, so yep. um, he's probably one of the older statesmen. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's a real chance for a lot of collateral damage on that score. I mean, Gareth is a, a quite a high-profile character who's, looking at, you know, not getting to fulfil his last year, potentially. But also, you know, you've got Jimmy Anderson, who's, um, again, I mean, he protests that he's got many years left in him, in him, and I hope that he does. But it doesn't help as you're getting to that age to have a, a year knocked off. Uh, like I say, the, the, the sort of, it's a little difficult to get too vexed about those issues right now because, you know, we're looking at a lot of people who are worried about an awful lot of their family members. You know, the, the England tour to Sri Lanka was quite rightly called off, even though, and, and I was, you know, I, I desperately wanted that to go ahead. I was going to go out for it and um, and it and it didn't happen. <laughs> and people were saying, well, couldn't they play it behind closed doors? They sort of forget that the players are human beings and they had family back home, you know. And just the same way, I've got in-laws who are in their 80s and we're trying to work out today and tomorrow before they sort of go behind the metaphorical paywall on Saturday when we're supposed to not see them anymore, how we can set them up and look after them for 12 weeks when you can't go around and see them. Uh, So I guess in a way, the sort of temporary end of a stellar career in cricket, doing something that you really enjoy, takes kind of second place to the very real family concerns that people have got up and down the country right now and sport needs to sport I think sport needs to remember that it is as I think Jonathan Liu might have said and also sort of Jurgen Klopp in a different um, context it, it's the most important of the unimportant things uh, it really it does matter to an awful lot of people and I think the lack of sport is going to hit people very hard over the course of the next few weeks but in this initial phase uh, and it, it, we're, we're looking at one of the most remarkable events, certainly in my lifetime, um, since the Second World War, really. And what we've firstly got to do is get everybody to buy in to the realisation of just how severe this crisis is. And then, in a way, deal with the fallout. Because at the moment, there's an awful lot of... Still, I live in London, and um, uh, there's a kind of a lack of awareness of just how severe it is among a certain sector of the population. You know, the younger you are, the the less it, it impacts you, it feels. Well, I think we're going to start to feel those impacts severely, shortly. Mm, yeah, we'll have to monitor it and, and see how, how it plays out. Uh, but maybe something that we can be thankful for is that the, the women's T20 managed to to finish up just before uh, the coronavirus uh, really hit and, and made a huge impact um, and 
yeah, I, I don't think it's been spoken enough about really is women's cricket and um, how, how much of uh, a rise and uptick there's been over the last, I don't know, maybe two years or so that I've seen because um, I I'm, I'm managed to watch a few games and highlights and that and yeah, with really good games, some really exciting close ties um, and yeah, the likes of, of, of Thailand uh, playing cricket at a women's T20 World Cup, uh, just amazing. Isn't it marvellous? I mean, I I sort of got into women's cricket properly for the first time around about 2008, 2009. And um, we started when it was televised, basically. And I've followed it very closely ever since. I've done an awful lot of commentary on it for the BBC. And just the improvement in the quality of the game it's fairly obvious why when money goes into the game and players can devote more time to it and you know perfect their skills they create a better and better spectacle i'm delighted that they're getting the exposure now that they didn't used to get before that and that you know women's cricket has always been at the forefront of innovation they invented the world cup format rachel hayhoe flint back in 73 i think it was um They've had this points-based Ashes system, which I think we might see in future, actually. I think if men's cricket wants to make bilateral series relevant with all three formats, we could do worse than look at the way the women's Ashes is constructed. You know, if every tour you played three tests, three one-dayers and three T20s, that would just be a great way to showcase the different formats we've got and make each one of them relevant as well. And the expansion of the game that women have helped to encourage Thailand being a superb example of that. But also, you know, the Brazilian women's team has got paid professionals playing for them, while men's cricket sort of really doesn't like, oh, God, have we got to play Ireland? Have we got to play Afghanistan? Have we got to play Zimbabwe? You know, Australia famously barely ever touring Bangladesh. So, I, think, I mean, it's marvellous what, what women's cricket is doing for the expansion of the game. It's also, you know, really important in keeping cricket alive in countries like, I, I believe this firmly in England, where we see the club scene getting more and more decimated, having less money in it and having less participation as we've had in England. Uh, getting women involved in the sport, getting them coming along and playing, it encourages everyone to stay around because the sport is about community. And if you have a community, but it's only got one gender in it, then starts to lose its appeal to a lot of people, you know. Um, so I, I just think that's fantastic. The MCG being almost packed out, 86,000. It was For the people who were there, it was a really emotional moment. I've talked to a lot of colleagues who went there, Henry Moran, Alex Hartley, Kate Cross, you know, who were part of that spectacle, Mel Farrell, etc. And they just said, you know, they had tears in their eyes. It was a sort of culmination it felt, of this first phase of getting women's cricket to be really front and centre and really relevant. And, I mean, I, I'm utterly delighted by it. it, never, and it and even the best thing about it in many ways was that that game between England and India was uh, not England, was it England and India? It was, was rained off. Because every, every World Cup, every men's World Cup has got some kind of, Farago from the authorities, be it the boundary count in the last World Cup or whatever that drives people mad. And now the women are finally coming to the party and they had their own fuck up. So it sort of, it felt like they were 
they were finally part of the proper full cricket family, you know. And uh, well, facetiousness aside, though, it was it was just incredible. And to, and to have Australia at the front of that, they totally deserve it. The Australian attitude towards women's cricket has been light years ahead of everybody else's. Um, second in line to that would be England, whose own attitude has been light years ahead of the next ones. You know what I mean? So you've got this slight danger to women's cricket that Australia are running away over the horizon. But we saw them when they lost to India in that first game that they are beatable. But we also saw the real value of having 100 paid professionals, having a really strong women's big bash, uh, having proper grassroots involvement and also talking in terms of equal pay, things like that are so important in the game. And Australia are, are way ahead of, on this and they're leading the way on it. And it was just, well, it was it was awesome to be there. I was deeply jealous. I had to watch it on TV and listen on the radio. So, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was hoping that the South African women's side were, were going to make it there. Uh, but obviously, the, the, they did get pipped in the semi-final. Well, Dan nearly uh, did, though. I mean, you know, they yeah. made a terrible error. Chloe Trial needed to be in earlier. That was the issue. Mm, yeah. But, you know. Yeah, it, it it seemed so close uh, yet so far, uh, which is the usual thing for uh, South African cricket sides, whether it's it's men or women now it seems. Um, um, but yeah, do you think that the other the other women's international sides that are coming up, like South Africa, and that uh, to some extent uh, can can learn from those structures that are being put in place? in England and Australia, um, like you say, because like the big bash, uh, the women's big bash and that has really kicked off over the last few years. Um, the English uh, women's leagues and that have also picked up. Um, and yeah, I, I'm not too sure if they're there from my knowledge in South Africa kind of thing. I don't know if there's that kind of strong structure when it comes to women's cricket. I don't think there is yet, but you know, South African women's cricket has come on so far, so fast. I watched them, I can't remember the exact year, it might have been 2016. And it was not a dissimilar team to the one they had now. You know, Van Nika, um, Mignon Dupria, um, Chloe Tryon was playing even then, uh, Suna Luce. And with no disrespect to them, the, the English team completely outclassed them. They played tw T20 games in uh, Scarborough, I think it was. And they couldn't really get above 80, 90 runs in 20 overs. The difference in the last few years from a bit more time, a bit more money going into the game and having some of that raw talent as well has transformed South African women into, I think, genuinely, you know, the four teams that were in that, those semifinals, India, South Africa, England, Australia, are the best four teams. And it's testament to what South African cricket has done there, that they were anywhere near that. Because if you'd said to me three years ago, well, New Zealand and the West Indies would have been miles ahead of South Africa. Well, they Part of it's because New Zealand have gone, sort of stayed the same, really. West Indies have gone backwards. But South Africa, to their credit, have gone forwards. And they were really impressive throughout the tournament. You know, they were in that semi-final by rights. They were unbeaten. Uh, they could have beaten Australia. It would have been... I mean, it would have been a shock, but it didn't feel like it would have been a shock when you were watching the game. Because some of these these players are now really well-known. Shabnam Ishmael, talked about Van Niekerk, Lizelle Lee at the top of the order. I've been at the Oval and watched her hit the ball 
literally out of the ground on the gasometer side. She doesn't hit small sixes. She's she is a powerful woman. Let's put it that way. Um, what I would say is that they've got things to work on. Uh, fitness is an issue in South African women's cricket. They sort of remind me a little bit of the Northampton team of four or five years ago. Uh, I think they could do with spending a little bit more time on that. But you know, this is a, a mild observation, uh, at worst, a very gentle criticism because where they got to from where they were is a really encouraging sign. And you touched earlier on Thailand. You know, at the back end of that game, they they took 150 off one team, which I can't remember exactly who it was now. Yes. Um, but it's... trying to do that, that early in their development, is mm. really it was, impressive. It was, big, it was one of the big teams, I'm sure. Um, it was. Was it Pakistan? Was it... I, I can't... Yes, I think it was. I yeah, think I it was think Pakistan, it was. yeah. And, you know, Pakistan have also come on miles. I, I saw them three years ago, and they were really sort of lethargic. They had, very, well, they had very low ambition, you know. They're batting out 50 overs and scoring 163 when chasing 320. Now they look like a side that believes that it can win. And so, you know, when you see Thailand doing that well, part of it is because um, the... How can I put it? It's not that the standard, because you can't, you, you know, you they're two different games, men's and women's cricket. But I think that it is possible for a women's team to progress quicker and get nearer the the teams at the top than it would be, for example, for the Thailand men's team. If you put the Thailand men's team up against you know Australia in in a one day international, we'd, we'd be waiting quite a while before they'd be competitive. So it's one of the great things about um, women's cricket is that you can get these stories. They can develop a bit more quickly. You know, a little bit like having a bunch of Afghanistans in the men's team, if you like, where Afghanistan were unique. I think we might see more of this in the women's game. And I think that's going to help to uh, to grow the game globally, you know. Mm. And, and, you know, moving to more the men's side of things, um Obviously, the England team of recent has just been well phenomenal to say the least. Um, just yeah, some of the players. If you just look like at Stokes, um, yeah, he's just. Uh, I just love watching him, even when he is beating South Africa and yeah, decimating our bowlers and that. Um, but just some even the the, the new players. Uh, I loved watching Ollie Pope and that. Um, he really excites me. Um, Ollie Pope's an interesting got... one. <clears throat> Excuse me. Ollie Pope's an interesting one because um, you he's one of those rare guys that comes on the scene and you watch him bat. And unless you're really unlucky, look, he's got a first-class average of nearly 61. So most of the times you go and watch him bat, you'll see him bat for a while. And in that time you get that strange sensation that you know exactly that he's going to be he's going to be fine he's going to have a great career you don't always i mean you very seldom get that in actual fact when you watch new players coming on the scene you see good things you see talent you see ability but you don't get this calm assurance that they're the full package so early you know um i think we'll be seeing whenever this coronavirus breaks we'll be seeing a lot of ollie pope for I, you know, the next 10, 15 years, no trouble at all. And England are going through a bit of a transition at the moment. And I guess what's encouraging for them is 
that after years of searching for opening batsmen, they have now, I think, sort of found the three that they want to stick with in Crawley, Sibley, Rory Burns. And they've found their feet pretty quickly. It's very hard in modern day cricket, especially against the Red Bull, for any openers. We did a Wisdom Team of the Year in 2018. And I remember looking at the stats on that, and there were only two openers who averaged over 38. They were Tom Latham and Dimuth Karuna Ratna. So, you know, it's getting very hard to bat against a new ball in the conditions that that players are playing in right now. And also because so many of them are, are used to playing a different sort of format of cricket as well. So when you if you can alight upon a couple of opening bats and it makes such an enormous difference to your side. You think of the great South African sides and Graham Smith, Herschel Gibbs, Gary Kirsten. Having a really solid top three is vital and England haven't had that for quite a while. I think they're getting there now, supplemented by the likes of Root, obviously Stokes Pope. And they've got a good blend of experience in Broad and Anderson with youth in Jofra Archer. They've got uh, Mark Wood intermittently there and thereabouts. Plenty of backup bowling. Sam Curran, Chris Wokes. So they're in a good place at the moment, England. They're, they're fortunate that Test cricket is really well supported in this country and supported also by its own board, which, you know, helps. Because it means that players can devote time to Test cricket. The bigger worries are in the likes of South Africa and the West Indies, where um, the boards just aren't able to remunerate their players sufficiently to be able to guarantee that they're going to be able to, you know, that they will be around to play Test cricket. You think of South Africa, and who knows, maybe if Brexit happens, again, coronavirus dependent, the coal pack situation may change, and that may change circumstances for South African cricket for the better. Won't necessarily change it for the better for the players, though. So you've got these competing issues. Um, my concern, I guess, in Test cricket, and we've always got concerns because we love cricket, so it wouldn't be right if we weren't always panicking, is that um, Test cricket sort of becoming an England, India, Australia club. Uh, New Zealand should be allowed to join, but are never given the credence that they should be given because they're a truly terrific side. And the fear is that the likes of South Africa and the West Indies are just on a sort of nasty down curve. The West Indies are bucking that trend, it's got to be said, lately, which is very promising. But South Africa does need to get its house in order. It needs to get its board working for the best interest of its players. And it needs its players to be able to buy in also to that board, which they haven't really been doing for the last couple of years. Yeah, hopefully now with, with Graham Smith coming in um, from the South African or the CSA side of things, hopefully he will be able to to change things up uh, and hopefully get more a better foundation going forward. Um, and uh, I definitely like the fact that Mark Boucher has been brought in as, as coach in that, and that we're also getting some of those old heads back, like Jacques Cullison as, as consultants in that. So... Uh, I think Kevin Peterson also he, uh, yeah, tweeted out something about it quite a while ago, um, and yeah, made me think why why aren't we we using uh, the this there's a plentiful um, ex South African legends sitting there that you can yeah use uh, as consultants if you think like you've mentioned uh, the likes of Gary Kirsten obviously. 
coached India uh, to a World Cup uh, victory. Uh, and you look at the the bowling side of things as well, the Alan Donalds, um, the Sean Pollocks and the, and the like. Um, so, yeah, there's just a lot of talent there that, that needs to be used. I think they will. <coughs> Excuse me. I think I think they will. I mean, I think there's been regime change, hasn't there, within the board. And uh, it looks to me like the right people are in place now. That It was tough for them, I think, that series against England. They caught England at a good moment in the first Test match. They caught them slightly on the hot and dreadfully ill as well. It's got to be said. Um, barely, barely getting 11 fit players out on the field. So uh, it was then you sort of saw the old failings of the by old failings I mean the failings of the last couple of years really come back. So there's a there's a confidence issue. But we shouldn't downplay also I mean we were doing a program called the Cricket Social during uh, that test series on the BBC and somebody sent us in an eleven of South South African cricketers who are currently playing who are ineligible for South Africa because they're cold bats. And there were some really terrific players there, you know, Simon Harmer, Hashim Ambers, retired, but you know, Kyle Abbott. There are some really good players that just aren't available. And that does make it more difficult for the board. In some sense, it makes it, it gives a bit of clarity, though. So if I'm going to give a positive, uh, uplifting message to South African cricket fans, when Jason Holder became captain of the West Indies, West Indian cricket was probably at rock bottom. And he basically got his squad together and he said, if you're committed to playing for the West Indies, especially Test Cricket for the West Indies, then tell me now and we'll proceed with you. Those of you who aren't, I get it, that's fine, but we're not going to fanny about anymore. And in a way, that sort of clarity for the West Indies meant that they could build and progress with a group of players rather than sort of constantly looking over their shoulders saying, oh, I wish we could have Kyron Pollard or I wish Darren Bravo was available or Darren Sammy or whoever it was. They just said, right, this is what it is. This is a new regime. Shimron Hetmeyer is going to be playing. Shannon Gabriel is going to be playing. That kind of thing. And they had a fantastic year in 2018, a pretty good year in 2019 as well. And they beat England uh, at home. And they had one of the best pace bowling attacks just in terms of pure numbers in the world. So uh, South Africa can do that. It's it's perfectly feasible that they can come back from where they are at the moment. And I expect them to because South Africa is a nation which is as obsessed, if not more, with sport than pretty much anybody else out there. So this is a cyclical thing. It'll come round. The right people are in charge. There's a pool of talent. Um but that doesn't mean to say I want to downplay the problems they've had with their board. I don't personally think their board has helped them out and helped their players out a great deal in the last couple of years. I just see that changing now. Yeah, uh, I also see that that change, and it is quite positive, uh, especially from a fan perspective. Um, maybe in closing, uh, if the T20 World Cup in Australia, the men's side, uh, does go on, uh, this year, um, hopefully. Um, who do you think is, is probably in the running to take it? Because from my perspective, I think my money would be on England at the moment to, to win a T20 competition, uh, just like their overall uh, build-up of their, their team currently. 
I would, I think England has got has got the raw talent to do it. Um, what I would say is that and there's a terrific book out there called Cricket 2.0 by Tim Wigmore and Freddie Wilde, which goes into the history of T20 and how it's evolved over the years. The one team, the one country that has absolutely got T20 cricket but never gets the plaudits for it is the West Indies. People rather patronisingly think that you know they've, they've almost won by default or they got a bit lucky or it was because of four sixes from Carlos Brathwaite, you know, out of nowhere. Uh, they've actually been brought up playing T20 cricket but, and also playing improvisational cricket, take ball cricket. Uh, they grow up doing it from a very young age. So they've taken an approach to T20, which is unique. They really understood the importance of boundaries, especially sixes, being able to catch up when they're behind the rate. Um, they play a very smart brand of T20 cricket. I think England have got the players, but I was slightly concerned by the way they went about, for example, their T20 tour, uh, T20 games in South Africa. I didn't quite understand the, their use of their resources. Uh, maybe that'll change when you know Joffrey Archer's back and what have you. I'm not, I don't yet think that England know what their plans are for T20. I think they're a very potentially very good side. I think they are currently a good side. But T20 cricket is a lot more technical than, weirdly, than Test cricket and 50-over cricket in that you've only got these 120 events and they really matter. So you've got to think about your matchups. You've got to make sure you've done your homework. You've got the right bowlers on against the right batsmen, that your your batting order is right, um, that you use those resources especially well. And I... I Fairly confident that they will get there because I'm hugely impressed by Owen Morgan and by the England setup. Generally, I think it's a good one. So I would expect them to crack it, but I'd say don't certainly rule out the West Indies. Indians play a lot of T20 cricket via the IPL and have some tremendous young talents. Um, Rishabh Pant. I mean, Ravindra Jadeja for me is the most underrated cricketer of the pretty much the last. Well, since Jacques Callis, basically, he's an his, his numbers are extraordinary. Um, you've got Australia in this mix, and when they play at home, when they play any cricket in Australia, they're incredibly difficult to beat. And they've got real wicket takers in Pat Cummins, Mitchell Stark, Josh Hazelwood. When they get them playing, they're hellishly difficult to to get big totals against. I think those three are going to be the ones really to look out for. And then, of course, you've got the dark horses of New Zealand who always do better than anybody gives them credit for. It's not unreasonable to think that they were, I wouldn't say robbed of a World Cup, but they, they ran it so bloody close, they, they near as damn it did win it. So, you know, let's not... Uh, I don't think... That, there are no foregone conclusions here, but I would say I put those four teams at the, at the forefront of my thinking right now. And that not even mentioning Pakistan, who until very recently were the number one side in the world on the back of, what was it, something ludicrous, like 18, out of, 18 wins out of 19? I mean, it was absolutely nuts. So I, I just really hope it takes place because I think it's going to be exactly what cricket needs. There's every chance we're going to get no cricket at all this summer. It could be that starved of cricket, that could be one of the most exciting celebrations of cricket and relief if we can get back out on the pitch. 
Well, hopefully it does take place because, like you say, yeah, it, it will be exciting. Uh, and, you know, as you've mentioned, there are quite a few teams in the running that, that could uh, take it. It's, it's not a, a full, full drawn conclusion yet. Um, but in closing, thanks for joining me today. Uh, I appreciate your time and your insight. Well, Darren, thank you. And uh, tell me, are you are you isolating at the minute? Yes, I am. Well, well, this is your chance. This is your chance to to learn how to make the best bouillabaisse, <laughs> or get like you know, uh, passably fluent in Mandarin, or watch all of Succession. Um, there are positives that we are going to take from this. I intend to box set my way through this with such a plum, and by the end of it, you are never going to stand a chance against me in a pub quiz. That is, that is my avowed intent. <laughs> well, well I'm, I'm sure people will, will fear you if you ever walk into a, a pub <laughs> quiz night um, uh, unannounced. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, I think one can maybe do the things that you've always wanted to do uh, in this time off, uh, do those hobbies or all those uh, little creative things that you don't usually get the time to. Um, I'm definitely going to be doing a lot more reading. Um, I generally don't get an, enough time to read, so I've bought one or two books that I'm, I'm going to hit. Um, and then obviously, you know, podcasting. <laughs> And podcasting, exactly. There's going to be a lot of that, and there's going to be a lot of a lot of books are going to be written yeah. after this. Yeah. <laughs> there's going to be an awful lot of people having to edit an awful lot of books. So if there are any editors out there, um, be prepared for a deluge of work in around about September. <laughs> maybe maybe you, you need to look in doing a, a, a podcast. I know you've been on uh, The Final Word uh, a few times, uh, but maybe there's a, a gap for a Dan Norcross podcast. Well, there, there might be. We shall see, Darren. We shall, we shall see. At, at the moment, I'm much happier with other people working out the technicalities of it and sticking it on their platform. So <laughs> I'm an essentially uh, lazy man who, of 50 years old who uh, having to learn new things. I, I prefer, I love it when you just ring me up and all I've got to do is talk to you. <laughs> That's what it amounts to. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm happy with that. So I think that's that's a good thing. 